Sunday, October 18th, and you are listening to Peanuts and Popcorn. PNP is a spontaneous podcast between two old friends on baseball and motion pictures. I'm Tom Hockney. And I'm Leo Fontana. This week on Peanuts and Popcorn, Tom and I keep our black armbands on as we react to the passing of Joe Morgan. The Tampa Bay Rays are going to the World Series, and they'll be playing either the Los Angeles Dodgers or the Atlanta Braves. We break down both league championship series, and we ask, why does everyone like Dusty Baker so much? The Rick Renneria era ends on the South Side and in Chicago, and we'll be asking who will be filling out the lineups for the White Sox in 2021. In our Cubs segment, we examine what the Cubs might look like without Anthony Rizzo. And finally, in our popcorn discussion, we, took a, we take a look at Tommy's choice of the Indian classic, Panther Panchali. Tommy, how you doing? That was a mouthful. Oh, right yeah. There. No kidding. And you did it very well. I, I'm, uh, I'm holding up as well as can be expected. Yeah, yeah. It, it, these are tough times. You know, the weather has really turned here. It got cold this week, rainy, uh, and it, it was just a reminder of just of how difficult I think this winter is going to be. I mean, when we get together, or we, you know, ask me how I'm doing in, in December. Yeah. Ask me how I'm doing in January, because we are on the slide into yeah. the cold abyss. Yeah, no kidding. It's going to be pretty tough, but it's still, you know, it's still not like, you know, the battle of the bulge. It's not like, no, you know. it's not the battle of the bulge, but this is, this is going to be Tommy. I mean, socially, politically, whatever, it's going to be the hardest time any of us have ever endured in our lifetime. I'm, I'm thinking as bad as the coronavirus and the political climate has been, yeah, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but I believe the next six months are going to be the toughest period in at least in, in the history of our lives. Well, so. I'm not quite as optimistic as you are. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I want to I want to begin in our banner section with um, the Los Angeles Lakers winning the NBA championship for 2021 in sort of a, an interrupted season. Yeah. They played in the bubble and it was LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers who ended up victorious. And this is what his fourth or fifth championship. Yeah. I don't, so it's not six. It's not <laughs> as a Bulls fan. It I is, say it's, six. It's, it's not six. <laughs> but uh, what, what is interesting is that it's regenerated the discussion as to who's the greatest of all time, LeBron or Michael Jordan. I wanted to touch upon that. I mean, I, I, I didn't really watch, I didn't watch it all really the, the this NBA championship, I didn't see hardly any playoff games. Caught a little bit of the last game just because it happened to be on while I was playing pool. And uh, neither you know, did the I, rest of America, by the way. The ratings yeah. were god awful. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they were. And you know, so I, I'm glad for LeBron. I'll certainly give LeBron his respect, which he seems sure. to be very concerned. Yes. Getting, um, you know, he is the greatest player of his generation. He's the greatest right. player. Since Michael Jordan. Correct, correct. You know, and the way I like to look at this is, you know, there are people who are on the side of Jordan. I guess I count myself there. But look at their careers like two of the, uh, like a, a pair of championship wrestling belts or boxing belts that have all the jewels and gold medals on them. You know, and Jordan's has two central jewels that, that, that signify two three-peats, you know, yeah. with the same team. And they're de decorated with a garland of, of finals MVPs, honors, and rookie of the years, and all these other things that he's done. 
Whereas LeBron has more of these kind of, I don't know, smaller jewels that represent sort of perhaps a longer career in the NBA. And I don't know. I, I, I think that they're both great. If you want to hold a gun to my head, I still say Michael's greater. Yeah. You know, I have a more jaundiced view of uh, of the NBA and what is kind of what's transpired. I find it, you know, I look at it from a different perspective. I kind of find it troubling to a certain extent that this moving piece, LeBron James, can go from town to town winning titles. I mean, it just seems like it's flawed in the sense that in the old way, in the old days, going back to when you and I were kind of following basketball, due in part because of Michael Jordan, you know, Jordan, there was an innocence to the way they went about, you know, being the worst team in basketball to be in the best team in basketball, to be in right next to the Boston Celtics and the, and the Lakers, the old Lakers, as being one of the great basketball teams of all, all time. It's different now. It's almost, the NBA almost has a WWF quality to it that I can't quite reconcile. And I, and I, um, I love basketball, particularly college basketball. When it's done well, it's, 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 it's one of the great sports. I just think that basketball is going through a, a, a difficult time during a difficult time during this pandemic. But I do give them kudos that I think they did it the best. Their bubble yeah. approach to COVID was the best and the most successful, no question about it. There's just, going to strip clubs to get chicken wings. Yeah, yes. right. And, and 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 I love LeBron. I think LeBron is not only oh, he's a, great, a good guy. He's, he's not only a great basketball player. I think he transcends his sport in the sense that he's also on the front lines of the yes. you know the of the racial war that exists in the United States. And 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 he's done a, a, a fine job. It's just something about basketball that leaves me cold. I I don't know how else to put my finger on it. Well, I mean, he, he is a great player and he should go on the Mount Rushmore of great players. You know? Agreed, agreed. But, you but, know, it's, it's between him and Jordan, but they fail to realize that Bill Russell has 10 titles. Yeah. I mean, you know, when are you going to start? You know, I know it was a different time, but but he was the ultimate team player and, and he gets kind of lost in this thing. Jordan and LeBron, too, are different types of players. I mean, realistically, LeBron is versatile enough to play nearly every position. I mean, he could right. he like Magic defend Johnson. centers, if not be one. You know he was like mean? Magic Johnson was like that, too. Right. And, yeah. and Jordan is a true point guard. He's probably Correct. he's the greatest point guard or not point guard, but uh, shooting guard shooting to guard. ever play the game. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's apples and oranges again, you know, but with, I was, I, I will say this when Jordan was playing, I was a hell of a lot more interested. But, yeah. Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I always felt like there was three folks in the 20th century, 23 athletes that transcended their sport. First there was Ruth, Babe Ruth, and then there was Muhammad Ali. And then there was Michael Jordan. Yeah. And of those three, I thought Ali was the one that transcended it the most because of the time that he lived in. Um, but Jordan was no less impactful as oh, far no, as, absolutely. you know, it's just he, the, the brand, the Jordan brand. I mean, look, to this day, Gatorade has to get his permission to keep using little snippets of his image in their, you know, uh, old fashioned commercials that they like to run. So he, you, you cannot deny the impact of Jordan. And also, like you were saying, the fact is LeBron James picked the number 23. I mean, he's always been kind of chasing Michael Jordan. It's more on yeah. James's side than it is on Michael Jordan's side. <laughs> you don't have a LeBron James without a Michael Jordan, you know, so one begats the other. Right. I, I wanted to mention um, my brother-in-law, uh, well, actually begins with his net with my nephew, his son, 
has tested positive for the coronavirus. And now my brother-in-law has it, his wife has it, and they have two other kids. I don't know what their status is right now. But we've been shuttling food over there, brought them a mattress. You know, uh, these are tough times. And, yeah. uh, you know, because they can't all sleep together in the same room and they're sleeping on couches and things like that. So we had an extra mattress and we took it over there. You know, it, it, that's the closest it's gotten to me at this point. Now, I haven't really seen the guy in about four or five weeks. So, you know, I, I feel like I'm okay. You know, my family's okay, but this is just going to hit anybody. You know? welcome, welcome to the world we live in. I think we'll all, when it's all said and done, know multiple people that have died from it, that have caught it, all of those things. And it's just, it's about playing that avoidance game. Again, I go back to what I heard very early on that 30, 70% of America will have it in their body. And I've been trying to, as I've told you, be one of the 30%. I, I, I just will not be. In fact, I was not in, allow yourself. To. I had a dental procedure this week where at one point the dentist took his mask off right in my face. And I was I, immediately, I went to DEFCON 4. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's tough. I mean, I, I, I feel terrible, but, you know, by the grace, there by the grace of God go I. I mean, I've been True. out living my life, I've been masked up. Yeah. You know, my wife and I yesterday took our daughter and we went and looked at cars because we're going to have to buy a new car. Our, our, my minivan is breaking down. You know, we have to replace it. So we went out to, uh, we looked at uh, the Subaru Ascent and we looked at some Ford and Lincolns and uh, we looked at some uh, Volkswagens. And so I don't know what we're going to do, but, you know, we're going to have to get this car very soon. I, don't, I hate buying a new car. Uh, yeah, yeah. It is one of the least pleasant procedures you ever have to go through, but uh, but there I'm it from is. Detroit. I love it. It's it's to me. It's like a uh, it's a it's like a whole festival of of, of things that I love. Like the best line a car guy ever said to me is, "Hey, am I going to be able to make any money on this deal?" <laughs> I'm like, not really. No, I, no, I love really. the whole, I love the whole experience. I'm like, hey, is this the point where you go talk to your boss? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I like yeah. I know what goes on in these back rooms, so it's hard to try to sell. I, I just cannot talk to any car sales. Oh, I man. cannot as a speech. The man. husband buys the car, the wife buys the house. That's the way that that works. And yeah, you yeah, should embrace yeah. your role yeah. and, and, and be research. The beauty of it is because of the internets, you can go on and basically find out what, a, a, if you're buying a net new car, what yeah. the dealer paid for it. My advice to you is to not buy a net new car. My grandfather on his deathbed said never, you know, and he was an executive at GM for 40 years. He's like, yeah. there's two things. Don't buy a car in its first year of its, of its design. Of its, of, of its design year. Yeah. Never, ever do that. And number two, never buy a brand new car. The moment you drive out of that, that, that the uh, showroom, you've lost out. And back then it was like a thousand dollars. Now it's like 10,000 or $15,000 right, right, just right. by making that move. So always buy used and, and, and do your homework, find out what, what, for what your family needs, what is the best vehicle out there that families like you tout? And, and that's the vehicle you have to get in my opinion. And no. And I, I do do some of those things and I'm going to reiterate some of those points to my wife. So, uh, but, uh, this is some good advice and, uh, we need to get going on what it is that brings us here every week. And what is that, Leo? That is baseball. That is the peanuts. And that is the <laughs> peanuts segment of our show. 
And I'm going to begin with the death of Joe Morgan, the Hall of Fame second baseman. And this one really hit me hard, Tom. I grew up in Cincinnati watching yeah. that, that great Big Red Machine team of which Morgan was front and center. Right. He was arguably the greatest second baseman who ever played, who ever lived. Right. And he was, I think, emphatically the best player on that team and the reason why that team won championships when it did. He was a two-time MVP, I think an eight or nine-time or ten-time All-Star. Uh, he played with different teams. You know, I, I, I you forget how long he was with the Colt 45s and Houston right, Astros right. for maybe 10, 11 years before he came to the Reds and really kind of took off. But um, he died at 77, and I'm telling you, I really felt a lot older when I heard that news. You know? Yeah, it, it, you know, he, he had such a long career, and, you know, he was kind of a um, modest guy. But one thing I have to tell you, when he was on Houston, he was kind of a fair to Midland player. He was not, in fact, when the old Reds would get together with Joe Morgan, um, just recently, they would say, hey, you know, you were nothing until till you joined the Reds, blah, blah, blah. And, and basically, Morgan said, I made the big red machine. And he, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, he, and he did. He did. Yeah. That's that's the thing about it. And, and statistically, was he the greatest second baseman of all time? No, he was not. He was not better than, obviously, Rogers Hornsby or Eddie Collins. They both had bigger win above replacements. But at one point, Bill James was talking to Joe Morgan, and he said, you know, I've done a lot of research on this and, and based on my calculations, you're the greatest second baseman that ever lived. And Morgan said, that's outrageous. That's outrageous. Like he was offended by that because it was yeah, like, right. not, you do not talk about Rogers Hornsby like that. He was kind of yeah. thinking that Hornsby and the, rea the reality is James said, no, Collins actually was better than Hornsby. Hornsby is actually third in the equation. You're number one. And Morgan said, that's outrageous. Yeah. I, I, that's just outrageous. You can't talk like that. I too, you know, I, I have James's book where he rates the hundred best players at, of all time and the hundred best at every position. Yeah. And, and Morgan is firmly right there entrenched at number one. Well, but why is he number one? I'll tell you why he's number one. He was defensively better than both of those guys. And yes, Collins was a good defender. Hornsby, not at all. Um, but but Morgan was kind of a transformational second baseman. He was, you know, there's there's been a, a handful of those. He's what you want your second baseman. Correct. Five-time gold glover. And and in his win above replacement, while it is shorter or it's less than Hornsby and Collins, um, and, and by the way, you got to almost include Napoleon. Yeah, because he played second base too. But but the reality is when you combine all of the things, which by the way, Morgan hated the win above replacement. He absolutely hates goes, that's hogwash. Give me the ball in the glove. I don't want to, I don't, that's all yeah. writing on a piece of paper. That means nothing to me, but he's the perfect win above replacement guy because right. of the intangibles, because of an incredible amount of stolen bases, because of his ability to, uh, to stir the drink. He yeah. was the big red machine in that regard. And this year has just been god awful. This has been the worst year in my that I can re, uh, re, recall where this many great players have have left us. Uh, old old style players. We lost uh, five Hall of Famers this yeah, year. Yeah, 
Yeah, five Hall of Famers. That's extraordinary. And all of them are exceptional players in their own right. Uh, Morgan was right up there, though. You, you can make a case Morgan that he's as right good as anybody. Or Gibson. Yeah, I, I'm preferential to Bob, to Bob Gibson only because I saw him pitch, and I, I've never seen anybody as dominating as him on the mound uh, at, with the results. However, you, Seaver was incredible. I mean, you know, Lou Brock was not as good as those guys. Al Kaline, not as good as those guys. But Joe Morgan, I mean, you're talking about a two-time back-to-back MVP. That's it's only at it's, second base. At second base, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, and you're right. I mean, he he despised sabermetrics. He despised analytics. He felt that the game was more organic. It was played between the lines, and it was about getting on base and advancing runners. But the problem is, is that not problem, but what's interesting is that his career is a, is a monument to analytics. Yeah, it is. A monument to sabermetrics because when he retires, you know, or when he, you know, when, when people at the time looked at the big red machine, they said, well, the big stars are Rose and Bench, you know, because yeah. he gets all these hits and he right. hits all these home runs and Morgan's a nice player and he helps the team, but it's really those guys who are the best. And because because this is evidenced by the fact that Morgan didn't get a unanimous Hall of Fame vote, right? Which is ridiculous. That's a whole but, other subject. But, but if he had, if he had been eligible for the Hall of Fame at this time, yeah. no, not voted for. Nobody would have voted against him. That, that's the only thing that they would be talking about is his 100 win above replacement today. If it happened today, but if you ask Bench, if you ask Pete Rose and Perez to be to be honest, they'll tell you who. who how valuable Morgan was to the big red machine. He was kind of the glue. The big red machine was waiting for a couple of cog pieces in 71 and 72. And also you can make the case that Morgan benefited tremendously when they, when they lowered the mound because his stats, I looked at him, his stats prior to the lowering of the mound, again, fair to middling, but once he, once he joined the reds, he became a feared uh, hitter by average, by even power standards, uh, but still, you know, he was just a beast on the base pass. But there were two things that I think were at work there that kind of hindered Morgan. And the first was that he was playing in the Astrodome. And the second was Harry Walker, the Astro, the Astros manager, would not let him steal or didn't give him a free reign to steal. Yeah. yeah. When well, he arrived, no, I read Morgan's biography. And yeah. when he arrived, when they traded for him, when they traded Lee May and Bobby Tolan, who was well, who was loved in Cincinnati. Yeah, I, I had their baseball cards. Both Nobody liked this trade initially when it happened. But but that spring, Anderson sits down with Morgan and says, listen, um, Joe, when you get on base, okay, I'm never, ever going to give you a sign to steal or to not steal. I'm going to leave it up to you completely. We've been watching you in Houston. We think you know what the hell you're doing. You have complete free reign to steal when you think it's the right time to do it. And uh, we'll let you have that privilege until we feel like you can't handle it. And Morgan says that that conversation, he went when when Anderson took him aside and gave him that much confidence and trust. Yeah. It's like, there's no way I'm going to let this guy down. There's no way. Well, let me tell you, as a scholar of Sparky Anderson, he only did that with one or two other players his entire managerial career. Wow. Like he did that with Kirk Gibson. And yeah. then I think he even pulled it back from Gibson. But there was very few players that he gave that uh, that reign to because he had very tight uh, 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 base coaches 
and bench coaches. Remember, you know, his bench coach was Roger Craig. So, you know, they, he called every single pitch. He was very organized like that. So for Sparky to do that, Sparky recognized in Joe Morgan that he had this, he had this other worldly talent that was not being um, used properly. That's right. Because, because Walker and Morgan mentions this in his biography that he felt that Walker didn't like black players, didn't feel that they could handle these sort of higher aspects of the game. Right. And Morgan also attributes a lot of that knowledge because they, he, he recognizes that people always considered him to be a smart player, but he said that there was one year where he was injured. I think it was like his third or fourth year in the majors and he blew out his knee or something. Couldn't play the whole year. Only played like five or six games or whatever, but he basically sat there, you know, right by the catcher in the dugout and watched the whole game and got an incredible education, just paying attention picking up the details. And that's really, he said, the year where he learned the game as it should have been learned. Yeah. yeah. And that's the other thing too. His in-game baseball IQ was off the charts, yeah. off the charts. He would go to first and third. Eight. He, yeah. yeah. He would, he would, he was very good at reading outfields and uh, judgment of the ball when he was on the base pass. And so that made him extremely dangerous, like biased to a certain degree. Um, but you know, I don't know what's going on in 2020, but this year can't end fast enough, fast enough no for kidding. me. No kidding. From just from a psychological standpoint, is it the worst year ever? I'm not exactly sure. I don't think so. I don't think it's as yeah. bad well, as I, I think few it's, years, it's, but you know, 1933 was pretty bad in America too. Wait, 1933 was, but I'm talking about our lifetime. Yeah, you in know? our in our lifetime, it's our right lifetime, up there. You know. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's get on to uh, the league championship series. Uh, one wrapped up last night, the Tampa Bay Rays defeated the Houston Astros in seven games. They were up three, nothing. The Astros came back to tie the series at three, but uh, the Tampa Bay kind of took care of things last night and avoided being a team that was up three Oh, to only lose the series. Um, let's begin with this series. I'm, I'm glad Houston did not win. I oh, was me too. The whole world. The, I think the whole world outside of Houston and Dusty Baker are, are happy about it as well. I did um, not want to see them in the World Series. I, I'm with you. And uh, I'm very happy for Tampa Bay, a team that I think, you know, it had the best record in the American League. It deserves to be the American League champion. And and I'm glad that Russell Springer or whatever, what's his name? Uh, George, George Springer. George Springer, Jose Altuve, yep. Carlos Correa, Guriel, all these guys. All I'm, the cheaters, you mean? All the cheaters. I'm thrilled <laughs> that they will not have a chance to redeem themselves in the World Series. Now, um, you know, the Astros, when they fired Hinch, or and when, when Hinch was suspended, yeah. they had to bring in Dusty Baker to kind of provide their team with a little bit of cover, you know, from the cheating, against the cheating scandal, you know, because Baker gives them a kind of, I don't know, moral compass. And, uh, you know, Baker is so... He, he's been denied the brass ring for so long that right. you can't help but root for him. But I refuse to be manipulated in this regard. And I will, when I look at the Houston Astros, I will separate those players from Dusty Baker. And I will dislike them as much as I feel I need to. You know? Yeah. Well, again, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to repeat this. I think that the ire of the fans has been deferred and yes. they, they have yet to feel the the how just how much they're going to be trashed on the road next year um hopefully next year fingers crossed um but we can't take anything away of what the rays had to do this year 
just to get out of the division that they were in. First of all, they weren't expected. For, everyone knows they weren't expected to be here. But once they kind of established themselves by about the 20 or 25th game of the season, um, that even the Yankees, because at that point, the Yankees had started to fall out of first place, That's right. were, were starting to recognize that, hey, this this vagabond of misfits yeah. is, is a very good baseball team with a really good, um, you know, uh, a really good bullpen, as it turns out. Um, and the one thing that I'm learning throughout all of these great games is you have to have a, a, a really good bet back end of your bullpen to be able to survive. The Dodgers are learning that. We'll talk about them in a second. But I think kudos to Tampa Bay. This isn't so much for me about, you know, vanquishing the Astros, which they I can't stand them. I, if I ran the world, as you know, they wouldn't have been eligible for the play, playoffs this year. I thought that they should have paid that penalty. But regardless, they're gone now. And that's all that really matters. I just wanted to highlight one of the games. I think it was the second game. Um, this outfielder for Tampa Bay, his name is uh, Manuel Margot. Um, I don't know if you've got a chance to see him play yet, but he's, yeah. he's, oh, yeah. no, he's a little fire plug. But he homered in the game. But to me, what was incredible was that he made this catch off of George Springer. Uh, did you have a chance to see it? I did. It, it, I thought he was going to hurt himself. I, I mean, it was a, he went over the railing, catch all in on the ball, and the greatest headline uh, of, of sports headline of the year the next day, Margot Robbie. That is a good. That is a good headline. Very good headline. Yes. No. He. They're. They're a weird team. They have no stars, but they have great pitching. I mean, top to bottom, from their, from their first, you know, from their number one starter, from their ace all the way to the back of their bullpen, and everybody in between, right. is a really good pitcher. And you know, I saw a kind of a, a little sort of roadmap as as to how they were kind of constructed. And, you know, we're talking about a very small market team with a very small fan base. And what they just did was committed themselves to acquiring and developing pitching, yeah. you know, uh, they, and they took, they took it in all shapes and forms. They drafted it. They traded for it. They picked up guys who were injured. They rehabbed them. You know what I mean? And they put them in their lab and they talked about spin ratio and velocity and, you know, and they came up with uh, the, the something that the sum of which is greater than its individual parts. For sure. You, credit, you, you, you know? do. It seems to be the new model that, that, that we talked about this year that the Cleveland has done so well with regarding the Cubs have kind of touched on it with their little pitching lab, but, but Tampa Bay did benefit from quite a few acquisitions. Of, well, the Cubs, of, you know, they, they, the Cubs are, have done more than touch on it. I mean, they're, I think applying that model, they're not as advanced in that model as Tampa Bay or Cleveland. But but you, I, I, my hope is that we're going to kind of see this bear fruit for the Cubs, maybe not next year, but the year after. But, yeah. but the judgment has to be made on wins, you know. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know. And, and that's why Tampa Bay is looking so good right now, right? And I mean. Out of that really tough division with the Yankees, I mean, they deserve to be here. And, and you know, Houston played with a chip on their shoulder. They're like, we have to prove everybody that we're as good as, you know what I mean? that we can win this without cheating. Yeah. And guess what? They didn't. They didn't. So they, they didn't get that chance to redeem themselves. But they could have, though. They yeah. could have. They were like within two runs. They could have gone, you know. And, and there's no question that a series with the Dodgers would have been a dramatic one, just like a series 
with the Yankees would have been a, a dramatic one, but Tampa Bay sort of took care of that, you know, um, Tampa Bay took care of the, you know, and, and I wanted, you know, I was bummed a little bit that we didn't see a Houston, New York matchup, but, you know, I'm equally happy that uh, the Rays came out on top. So I, I'm more pleased that the Houston didn't make it to the world series than they ended up playing the, you know, the, the yeah. Yankees in, in the playoffs. I just, I just think that that's the, the, um, that's the way it's supposed to go. Um, it, it didn't, it, you know, I, I don't like the idea that you were in it at all, but let's, you're out of it now. Um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, while they didn't really feel the, 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 the ire of the fans, apparently in San Diego, there yeah. was a White Sox fan who yeah. has a high rise apartment uh, right across the street from the uh, stadium. Petco Park. Yeah. yeah. And what he did was he went and found a megaphone that had the distance. He actually had to get a special megaphone that had a 700 foot range or whatever the, 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 the distance that he needed and started um, basically in a, a respectful way, harassing the, the, the asterisks to a point where they actually were like, Hey, where's that coming from? And the announcers, Nobody really reported it in the, uh, you know, in the fake, the game, but in the fake news, but, could but, hear it but you could hear it. And so my point is get ready for that stuff, Astros, and you better develop a thick skin because until that core that you talked about is broken up, you guys are, you guys are the bat. You're the guys that wear the black hats. There's just yeah. no getting around that. I don't know how you redeem to me, how you redeem yourself is, is that you, you throw your, you know, the mercy of the court of the American public. Correct. And that you devote some time to actually showing that you're not a cheater anymore. And, and, you know, this, I don't know how you do it, but you do something. You, to have win. To, yeah, you have to at least show that you're, you're contrite. You know, there has to be some sort of absolution and active. Yeah, you have to earn it, earn the, the, you know, the cheers of the American sports fan, because who knows, like I told you, it could, it could go on as long as one of the players is there. Well, as, as two longtime Catholics will say, confession is good for the soul. It, it is know? exactly that's good what for they the need soul. to do. So uh, not so good for the knuckles, though. So but. now I was watching, I was watching some of the pregame ahead of the uh, National League Championship Series. And this was on Spot Fox Sports Net, and it was uh, you know David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez, and Alex Rodriguez said something, and I had to rewind the TV to make sure that I was right. But he's talking about the Dodgers Braves game. And he says, I believe the winner of this series will go to the World Series. <laughs> Captain and, Obvious. And I mean, really, you know, way to go out on a limb there. I think he probably meant to say, because they were talking about game five. Yeah. This was game five. And I think he meant to say that the winner of this game would be going to the World Series. But, but it didn't come out that way. And, uh, you know, I, it just makes me wonder, how does this guy – get these plum assignments why does he's all i don't know if he's got pictures of their executives in compromising positions i don't know but you're right he's got to go the biggest problem with a-rod is he's a happy ass that to me that this this personality of like he's just this happy guy that cheated in the game of baseball you know another cheater a nice yeah. nice segue there but he i in one respect he's so terrible that like the worst and the worst color guy i ever heard and no disrespect to the dead was al Kaline. Al Kaline was teamed with George, uh, uh, what do you call it? George uh, Kell. George Kell, thank you. How could I forget that? And George Kell was had a memorable Southern type of twang. Yeah. You know, he used to right. look out. Was, it is. Look, it's, 
you know, he, he just had this, but K-Line was just this dry guy. And he used to say stuff like, well, you know, George, if the Tigers get some hits and score some runs, they could win the game. That's right. Well, and, and I'm like, okay, Al, okay. thank you, buddy. Thanks. I guess I could turn this off now. <laughs> and and, 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 and A-Rod is exactly the same way. That's my point. He's, it's just, you know what? Go away. Go away. Yeah, yeah, please. Because I... I I'm, I'm getting. He makes me yearn for Howard Cosell. Yeah, uh, let's put right. it that way. I'm getting to a point where if if he is part of a broadcast, I'm really not interested in hearing it. I don't exactly. want to know what he has to say. He's he's not enlightening me in any way. And I think that you and I are pretty. I mean, as fans go, you know, we we're not we're not players. We're not managers. You know, we don't have any influence or access to the game. But yet, I think we're probably pretty enlightened in the game. You know, you know I, I need more from from an analyst. I'm you know, cele celebrities have a cue, you know, that they use, like how well that's a quote, how well you are liked in the in, in the public square. And they keep track. Yeah, they keep track of that. Um, you know, and uh, it reminds me of the the old guitar player on Saturday Night Live. I can't think of his name, but he had, yeah, he had the worst cue of any celebrity. At one point I was reading, I'm like, people hated that guy because he was this smug guitar player on Saturday Night Live. And I think A-Rod has suffers from some of that too. I think that, you know, it doesn't help him that he has the, you know, the cloud of steroids hanging over him. That it doesn't. So automatically you're going into people not liking you and then you don't help yourself with what you say. That, that's, that's so funny you mentioned G. Smith because I remember back in the 90s or back in the 80s, 80s and 90s. G.E. Smith. G.E. Smith. G.E. Smith. I, there was this, I had this girlfriend and she hated him. And I never oh could understand why. I despised him. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you have such a, the only guy that's got a more punchable face than you is A.J. Brzezinski. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is so funny. All right. So, so, uh, so let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the Dodgers and the yeah. Braves. Yeah. The NLCS. Uh, and, and you cited that, the you know, and this is a series, again, I didn't see very much of, you know, I'm very busy with school and things like that. But you cited that the Dodgers, you know, made uh, postseason history with an 11 run first inning against the Atlanta Braves. What was this game five, I think, or game four, where they finally just woke up after the Braves had kind of been pushing them around? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was game game four, I believe, or five. Game but four or five. And, um, you know, so... I, it looked like maybe one of those softball games that you and I used to play in where the <laughs> rule, you know, I thought that would be invoked, but when you fall behind 11 runs in the first inning, I think that it's going to be very hard for you to win that game. Don't you agree? I, I do agree. And the reason why I kind of put that in there is because I was looking at some of the other old records, the 10 run record that existed before, which by the way, the Cardinals tied last year, um, in I think the first or second inning against uh, whoever they knocked out of the playoffs last year. Um, but the Tigers, my Tigers did it in 68 in the World Series. Remember, they were down three games yes. to one, but in game six, they scored 10, like in the third third inning of the game six, which guaranteed that there was going to be a game seven. So I just, that was an incredible moment. I felt that this year, watching that as much as I could, I started to tune out on the Dodgers, is that that was going to propel them to come back to win. And I still kind of feel like that because well, they moments, I mean, they're going to game seven is today. Correct. Correct. And, and, and that's why I just thought that, you know, the Braves, 
they, the Braves had to be sitting there going, holy shit, this is the, the Dodgers everybody was talking about because they literally, their pitchers could not get them out. They tried multiple. And, and the Dodgers look good. I mean, Mookie Betts has just been. He's a beast. He's a beast. My God, he made this unbelievable right. catch. He did. The, didn't well, he? That was incredible. You know, and he's just getting hits. He's just just incandescent, man. Yeah. It's, it's really, you know, and, and if Kershaw had really done anything in this series, they'd have already won. But as it is, we go to a game seven tonight. And I, I don't know. I'll try to watch it. it got a ton of stuff to do. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly at least see the, the highlights. I wish I was more of a Dodger fan or a Brave fan, so I would have a little more interest in this. But, uh, you know, it, it should be a very exciting World Series no matter what happens. I, I'm secretly rooting for the Braves. I've got a friend of mine at work who's a huge Braves fan, and I'd like to see him be uh, happy uh, in the work, uh, the next work week or so. So, I'm just rooting for the Braves only because the Dodgers are, you know, the Goliath here. And I think that, um, that you like seeing Goliaths get, get, get beat. That's, that's right. what, you know, Sparky used to say, I want to be the team in the weeds. I don't want to be the team that's yeah. out there that everybody want to be the target. You, right. right. And, and so the Braves are in the perfect position. However, the fact is they don't have a pitching staff, how they've gotten here to this point with basically, you know, elbow grease and, and spit. Yeah, they don't really they they don't really have frontline starters. However, they're going to address it because they're they're like the White Sox. They're a formidable offensive machine right. to deal with. They they just, and, yeah, but, they, but they've got they've benefited from some extraordinary, yeah. unexpected pitching. And will that run out against the Dodgers? And then there's this other sub story, which is, you know, Clayton, why can't you win a big game, buddy? I mean, yeah, it's just. You're going to go to the Hall of Fame, but you're going to be maligned because literally every team of note in the from 2015 up to 2020 has beaten you. And, um, and you know, and sometimes badly. <laughs> I remember in the NLCS back in 2016, you know, they were playing the Dodgers, the Cubs were, and Kershaw was going up. I think it was like game six. Yep, that's right. That's exactly you know, right. And I was talking to my friend in St. Louis, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm really worried Kershaw's going tonight. He's like, I wouldn't. He's like Kershaw. For, with me, that's the guy who who always gets roughed up in the big games. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I don't know what it is because he's. It's not any kind of a mechanical issue. Because like I said, if you look at his numbers, if he stops playing tomorrow, he goes into the Hall of Fame. Right into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. He's so he's he's that he's that good. Yeah. Um, so it's perplexing to me. But I think that you know the Dodgers should win tonight, just like they should win the World Series. But that's why they have to play these games. That's what games. that's what Houston painfully found out yesterday. That's, and that's why everybody likes, you know, a Samson defeating a Goliath. Correct. That's correct. That's I correct. mean, you know, and back back when Samson really did kill Goliath, that yeah. drew a huge audience. So, it did. But it anyway, did. all right. Well, so no, there was only one channel back then, though. There was only one channel. That's right. There was. There was. <laughs> so, um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about a story. Let, the team that the Dodgers defeated to get to the National League Championship Series was the San Diego Padres. Yeah. And Tommy Pham is an outfielder on this club. This is a former St. Louis Cardinal. And he had a bit of an incident he where he was stabbed. He actually was stabbed with a knife and somebody stabbed him and he had to go to the hospital. And where it happened, I think, I mean, he's going to be all right. Yeah. You know, he was treated. It's not very serious. He was slashed and not stabbed. Exactly. You know? The, the gangbangers made a point of saying, hey, we didn't stab him. We slashed him. 
we just slashed him. Make sure you write that down. (laughs) Write that down. But what was messed up about it was where it happened. You know, Tommy was coming out of a strip club and there was some sort of fight or something or argument or going on at his car in the parking lot. And he said something to these guys to, Hey, get away from here. This is my car. I, I want to go. And one of them pulled a knife and kind of slashed him with it. And, uh, I will say that, you know, Tommy was very sort of polite about the whole thing. When he was in the hospital, he tweeted out, uh, you know, he, uh, he didn't want his fans to worry that he's okay. The doctors and the nurses who took care of him were great. You know, when, when I come out of strip, you know, when I come out of strip clubs, I know I can count on the police and the fire department and the ambulances to take care of me. So I'm, I'm really glad for him, but is this somebody? It's it's, embar- it's embarrassing, right? It's I don't know if this guy's a married man, but yeah. Uh, yeah. he's got some explaining to do if he if he really does. does. But really. but the idea that he came out of, I'm guessing he's got a great car. He came yeah. out of this this the strip club, and there was a you know a group hanging around his car, and he basically said, "Get off of my car," and that's what started you know. Yeah. The, the jets started, you know, snapping their fingers. And the next thing you know, you know, he's got a little uh, Zorro mark on his back. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I mean, I, I hope you heal soon, but I would stay away from the strip clubs, Tommy. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So uh, there was an article in The uh, Athletic I cited about Dusty Baker. And we were talking about Dusty before and how, you know, the Astros bring him in to kind of give him some, give them some cover against the cheating scandal. And uh, the article was really just a kind of a love letter to Dusty Baker. And it it, it goes around the league and talks to literally, I think, a dozen different people and asks them what they think of Dusty Baker. And all of them, to a man, think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, that they loved playing for him. They loved playing for him when he was managing in Chicago or wherever he was or Cincinnati or 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 or, uh, with the Giants. Um, and my question is, why do you think people like this guy so much? Because fans can't stand him. You know? Well, true baseball fans like yourself and 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 me, I I've I've criticized him, and I'll continue to criticize him as yeah, not I being able to I have criticized. Right, him. I've I've criticized him as a manager of how he deals with pitchers. Yeah, that's that's the only thing. Other, but I learned something from this article. This was very um, enlightening to me about what just a great person he is you know what I mean and the relationships he develops with the people he comes in contact with and this is just not just the players not just the coaches it's it's everyday people every city he ever ever managed in or ever played in he knows people you know he knows people who know people he he knows famous people he knows ordinary people and all of them just think the world of him. And it, and it is interesting. And he has very diverse interests, you know, beyond baseball. He likes fishing. He, he's very into fine wine and food and knows he's, history. He, he remembers birthdays. He's he one of those guys. He's kind of like jo- the first George Bush. George yeah. Bush was like that. Like he wrote notes and stuff like that. I did not know that side of Dusty, that he was basically every man. He, yeah. can, he can, uh, you know, uh, party with the janitors or the presidents. He, yeah. like he, right. he, he can mingle in, 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 in many, many different classes in America. That was the part that was enlightening to me. And, and I, you know, I, I mean, maybe I should have rooted for him more. I, I will say that his great failing, I think, as a manager is that he's been really, really unlucky. 
No, he's been unlucky, but he does not know how to manage pitching staffs. And that's been like the, my criticism of him will never change. And that is you don't throw pitchers out there for 150, 160 pitchers anymore. This is this is not 1965. You can't. No, he, yeah. And that, that was famous how he kind of he's been criticized for ruining prior and, and not just prior ever, even in Cincinnati he was very successful in Cincinnati and he ran into that same problem in the playoffs where his pitching staffs were taxed and he had problems it, it again after a fifth or sixth inning which is becoming a bigger and bigger issue he struggled that and by the way that happened to him again last night I mean I hate to bring it up but that that kind of happened too. the same thing is his pitching was out of gas uh, uh, by the time it got to, to the, to this moment. Um, but I just, I came away really liking the guy. I, I thought there was one great comment on there, uh, where the, how he took in like the young African-American players as they came up yeah. as a manager, he was really good with that, but he has, he, apparently he has this one line that he would use with a lot of young players. Yeah. You know, I, you know, when, when, uh, Hank Aaron hit that, the home run that broke the record, I was in the on deck circle. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I was in the on-deck circle. Just remember yeah, that. Here when the wheel turns, there's no question about it. And, you know, I just recall when the Giants first hired him as a manager, you know, and how, wow, this was this big radical thing, you know, this yeah. sort of thinking man, but he's black and he's all, you know what I mean? He, there, yeah. He's all these sort of complicated, this complicated figure, you know, has really turned the Giants around. You know, you who know? he reminds me of is Bob Hope. He's like the Bob Hope of baseball. You know, he, he and, and he's the grand old man of the game at this he point. He really is. He, he really And, you know, I hope one day he wins it all. Maybe the Astros will keep him. And Me too. I, For, I, I do hope he wins the World Series because you know he, that's what he desperately wants. Well, that's what the Astros wanted when they hired him. Right. So that people like you could find your a way to root for them. Right, right. I mean, a reason to root for them. But, but again, it's hard for me to kind of reconcile those two factors. But uh, anyway, so speaking of managers, yeah, um, the Rick Renteria era in Chicago has come to an end. Um, the White Sox uh, and Renteria have agreed to part ways. He managed them for, I don't know how long, two, three years. Right. Uh, he was picked up after the Cubs kind of turned him loose. Um, and uh, the White Sox really feel like they want to go in another direction. They have a talented club that Renteria guided to the playoffs, but but they feel like he has shortcomings tactically and that they want somebody in there with a little more experience and a more of a proven track record. So he has shown the door for the second time in the same city with a team that's on the verge of perhaps doing something great. Is that you know, fair? Yeah, that's I do believe it's fair. I think he deserved to be fired after how I witnessed how he was kind of handling the team after the seventh inning and he was lost in those games. So yes, I, I do think it was fair. Um, I just think that, you know, Rick Renteria, he, same thing happened to him with the Cubs, right? I mean, he was the Doug Collins of both of those teams. And, you know, I, I hear, as you do from one of our fans, one of our few fans, who's a huge Sox fan, yeah. that believes that Renteria was the worst manager in baseball history. I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> and, and the fact is he's not the worst, you know, I, I would say to Mr. Superlative. Yeah. You know, go look up Les Moss's stats. Uh, you know, the perfectly named manager, Les Moss, and he was god awful. That was the guy Sparky replaced in Detroit. There's been a lot of god awful managers. You know, Renteria, he he had a great relationship with his players. 
So he's not even close to being the worst manager. He yeah. just tacked, like you said, tactically, he could not get the job done. And he didn't, you got to have like what Dusty Baker calls and Sparky Ander calls that gut feeling, that gut feeling to tell you, forget about the stats throughout all the Sabre metrics. Sometimes you got to go with your gut. Renteria's gut was bad. And that's you know, all I'll, that's the best yeah, way I can right. say it. Perhaps. And I think maybe he showed that. I, I don't know. You know, it's not my favorite team, so I'm not really. Right. It's, it's my, I hate that team. In the outcome. Right. But I'd like to see them win. Maybe maybe he's not the guy. They've got I, too I, much talent I, not to win. But you have to feel bad for a guy who's managing two teams that are on the verge. You know, he managed the Cubs in 2014. They go to the playoffs in 15 and win the World Series in 16. So he he, he, he misses out perhaps on those parties and then with the white Sox, it's kind of the same thing they have this up-and-coming team and then he's cut loose before they really have a chance to to do something special i but, I, but not just that they might replace him with tony la Russa. That, that's yeah. the, the crazy thing in this whole story if yeah. i'm renteria i'm like go ahead and fire me for for bad performance but really you're going to bring in this this old you know nothing against tony la Russa, but tony this is not a good idea i'm sorry I, I, is this sponsored by geritol what what is exactly what what exactly. is going on here? You beat me to that. I was going to make a Jerusalem joke. <laughs> sorry, sorry, man. That's all right. But uh, you know, I I think they might be better off getting Daniel Lorusso from the from the Karate Kid. But, but, <laughs> He's just uh, as old. Honestly, that guy's just I, as old. I heard about this, and I I kind of felt the same way as you did. I think it's a bad idea. I think it's not because I don't think Larusa can still manage. I think he probably can. Not, not that I think that he can't adjust to modern methodology and sabermetrics and analytics and things like that. No, no, no. I, I think all of, for all those reasons, he can do it. Yeah. The problem I have with this is that is, it is a move born out of nostalgia. It is a move yeah. born out of an owner trying to atone. Desperation a is a better word. That, that was made, you know, 37 years ago. Right. Okay. I mean, uh, Larusa. What we're talking about is, is Reinsdorf to this day regretted firing. Yes, La he regretted firing Larusa, and because because Larusa had led the White Sox to the the American League West Championship yep. in 1983, and they were on the verge. They were poised to be a great team, but they faltered in '84, and uh, Ken Harrelson, the general manager, fires him. And Harrelson to this day says that. The reason why he fired him is between him and Larusa, and no one will ever know why. The Larusa understands why he was fired, and Harrelson does, and it's personal between them, and it had nothing to do with his ability to manage the team. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea. I, I, yeah, I don't listen to Harrelson, thank God. But, but I, I think it was cheap of Harrelson. Yeah. Not to sort of reveal. Right. That, right. Why, why? Why even talk about that? That's that's just to me. It's that's like. I, if I was either one of the parties, I would not talk to Harrelson again afterwards. But, but, with, but with me, I really dislike him. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I disliked him when he managed the A's. I really disliked him when he managed the Cardinals. Yeah, right. And part of that is because, you know, I was rooting for teams that were in, that were, you know, in, they were contesting those teams, that they were in, in, in conflict with them. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not happy about it. La Russa would do anything to win, and he was a pioneer 
in the whole cheating business. Let me tell you, he was a pioneer. And, was, yeah. and, and so I don't, have, I don't have a thought, you know, I just think it's, it's a ridiculous idea. Just like when the Mets brought out this 90 year old guy a year or so ago, it just, they're band-aid solutions. Like you said, these are not permanent. And, and it does kind of reek of desperation and nostalgia at the same time. And I do think Reinsdorf is old enough and wealthy enough to play with his toys to say, hey, I want to make this right. Well, okay, but it's you're only going to make it right really for one year or exactly. two years. How long can he manage exactly. that club? I, I, I just I think you're better off going with a younger guy, a more modern thinker, a guy like Joe Espada, somebody who speaks Spanish. I know Larusa speaks Spanish, but even if he does speak Spanish, he's not going to speak Spanish like a native speaker, and he's not going to connect with those Latin players in the way that a native speaker would. Well. So, I know that next year they're getting the clubhouse ready and there'll be some like assisted living things in there. Like they'll have like a doctor on call. Uh, One of those bathtubs. Phys physical you, therapy. Correct. Yeah. 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 That you walk so, into and sit down. Yeah, that's right. So uh, uh, all seriousness aside, we have to talk about the, the um, uh, angels. Um, yeah. Drug courier, because this is a very somber story and we, and you and I said, as soon as this happened, somebody's in big trouble, and it turns out somebody is in big trouble. Somebody named Eric Kay, who's an employee of the uh, California Angels, the Los Angeles Angels at Anaheim, and he has been charged with, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's manslaughter or it's, uh, but it, it's murder charge, or it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very serious charge to correct, say that, correct, correct. that he provided Tyler Skaggs, a left-handed pitcher with the uh, Angels organization, with uh, with contraband drugs, with fentanyl, with uh, heroin. That's right. And uh, this was what led to his death. And uh, you know, so oxycotton. I mean, all yeah. these things. Yeah. So uh, you know, this is what the angels are going to have to kind of deal with. Right. It's embarrassing for their organization. Well, remember, there's a new new GM coming to, to the angels, so it'll be you know he didn't hire um, Joe Madden. No, so, he didn't. But so I don't who, see how you can fire Madden. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that there's going to be a new sheriff in the Angels town. And I just think that part of what he'll be tasked with is cleaning this up. You remember, go back to our show when, when this story first broke, that not only did we not hear the, the end of it, but there was going to be some changes that were going to come as a result of it. And I still think all of those predictions are, are true. Um, and you know, young man lost his life over it. So, you know, there's and, and and this guy, what's this? This whoever this this former uh, executive is, he'll never work in baseball again. Oh, he'll I never work. I mean, gee, he's never he's going to be in jail. Right. I mean, he's going to be working at the state's pleasure. He'll be making license plates. Right. Right. Well, he could manage the prison team. Yeah, he could manage the prison team, perhaps, and maybe they're and they're pretty good. But, right, what's going uh, on with yeah. our Cubbies? Yeah. So. Um, uh, in with uh, Cubs super prospect Braylon Marquez, a left-handed pitcher. He pitched, I think, one inning in uh, towards the end of the season. Yeah. And uh, this guy's a big, strong left-handed kid. Single leg guy. Yeah. And he and he throws really hard, and he has three or four really good pitches. And my question to you is: Is this guy the real deal? Have the Cubs finally produced a pitcher? that may make a real impact at the major league level? I'm going to say no. Oh. And the reason why is because I've seen this happen many times in my 50 plus years of following the game of baseball. And what the guy that it reminds me of a little is Joel Zamaya. 
Joel Zamaya at this point in his mi minor league career actually threw harder, was over 100 miles an hour and had good location. I just think when I see a guy like that, first of all, he seems like he's out of shape. I, I It just yeah, seems old. like, and so whenever I see a young guy that has that kind of velocity, it makes me think, unless you change your diet, unless you make some major commitments to what it is that you're trying to do here, you're always going to be susceptible to injuries. And I think when I watched his delivery, I'm just, it just, I'm not convinced. I've, I've seen these types before. He's going to have to do a lot more. He may be, I hope, you know, as a Cubs fan, I want him to be, but odds are he's not. And one of the things that kind of troubled me a little bit is his control. Like they were talking about there's, there's, you know, he's got that two seam fastball that he was trying not to throw as he was developing these other pitches. And he developed a pretty decent sinker. Um, this year, working with the pitching coaches, right. but they and noticed they has dive, you know, and, and he noticed they noticed that on his four seam fastball, he was not locating; it was going up on him, which is a very typical thing with fireballers. So he's a work in progress. To say that he's going to be this next phenom or the next Randy Johnson, it's unlikely. Well, there's potential there, but it's yes. raw. Yes, it's and, raw. That's that's a very good way. Of and if it. he's very young, and if he can get in shape, you know that that bodes well, you know. But uh, we'll see what happens. You're right, but but I also appreciate your caution as far as getting too excited about a young player. Right, right. Especially a pitcher. So um, so now Theo Epstein last week he kind of broke down. He had a press conference. And he sort of broke down the season. This is what he always does. He's yeah, very. Right. Sort of post, it's a post-mortem. It is. The post-mortem on the season. And he's very open and honest about uh, what happened that season and what he intends to do in seasons to come. Now, we're talking about a guy who's at the end of his contract. He signed right. you know, a five-year contract, and 2021 is his last year. And everything we've heard shows that he's going to you know, fill out that contract, collect his money, and work as hard as he can for the Cubs for at least one more year. But uh, what 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 did you take away from that press conference? I just I, think it's is it is it? I keep saying that. Are you going to leave right now because the Angels' job is open? Like I keep I keep thinking like you know what you have a lot. Of, first of all, he always said about the ten year thing. Even this would be the tenth year um, that he would leave after that. Yes. Uh, fulfill his contract. So I just keep thinking, is it? Is, is this the last, or is there something else at play? And because if there's nothing else at play and he keeps his job for this year and there isn't some type of a commitment to rebuild the team, um, it's going to get a little tiring for fans like me because I know what's going on. You keep, you keep getting the same hand of cards and you think you're going to win the, the world series of poker. It's not going to work out like that. You no. need new cards, man. You've got to cards and they need to kind of reset and rebuild and there's a lot of pieces they have to consider trading and they have to kind of replenish I think their farm system and sort of rethink what kind of team they want to be right so you know I I think what he's going to try to do is he'll fill out the contract and he'll do everything he can to uh to salt the mine as it were and yeah. get as many prospects or or players who could help the team down the road Right. So it's going to be a struggle, I think, for a little while. They'll be able to sign free agents, and they'll be competitive in in in, a, in that division. But uh, I don't think they're going to win the World Series anytime soon. So speaking of free agents, uh, Anthony Rizzo is faced with the fact that he could his playing days with the Cubs could be coming to an end. 
Um, what do the Cubs have an option or does he yeah, have yeah, an yeah. No, they, they do have a, they do have an option, but they also have the option of not of not keeping him because I think that option is like 15 million or some number like that, which is does not justify the the what you're getting for that money. I wouldn't do it, but they probably will because he's an elder statesman of the team. I think you have to resign him for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's still, I think, a productive player. I mean, I think you have to throw 2020 kind of out the window. And even if you, you know, look at what he did, you know, batting average wasn't good, but he still drew walks and he still hit home runs. He, and, he batted 159 at Wrigley with runners in scoring position. 159. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's got awful. It, it is terrible, but it's also a two month season yeah. under really difficult circumstances. I think you exercise the option because even if he, I mean, he certainly can't hit any worse than 159. And uh, with that, you're going to get brilliant first base defense. You're going to get a leader in the clubhouse, somebody that other players can look up to, somebody who can inspire other players, somebody who's well-liked by the fans. And it's 15 million. It's one year. You don't have to sign him again to something long-term. And he might do something next year to kind of prove the doubters wrong. I think you keep him. Well, at 15 million, you know, I feel like the grandfather on Pawn Stars. You know, I feel like saying, hey, you know, if it'll help you out, I'll give you three million. And then and then Rizzo will go, no, I don't want to accept it. He goes, How about if I give you two million? That's what that's what the grandfather would say. And I kind of feel that way. You're right about all of what you just said about Rizzo. I want him at a tremendous discount. In fact, I want a hometown discount. And the reason is is because you make a lot of money off the field. You're you're one of the most benevolent players this town's ever had. Like he's tireless with his charity. It's all intertwined in the whole Chicago experience. It's almost like you have to sign Rizzo, but I want a discount. I'm sorry, I just do. He married that nice Italian girl. I, I beautiful, so beautiful much. woman. Um, I, so I, I like Rizzo so much. He really is. So you let's know, we got to move on to popcorn here. You know, we do have to move on to popcorn. It's so been a before long before you talk a word on it, let me just kind of set it up and then I'll just turn it over to you. Go ahead. Go ahead. So this week I picked the 1955. Uh, film uh, directed by first-time director uh, Sajujit Ray, uh, and it's part of the Apu trilogy. It, the first film was called Pather Panchali. Um, it was made in 1955, like I said. Um, I saw this film originally on Turner Classic Movies, where they highlighted, um, I guess, the 100 top films that you know, all cinephiles have to watch this film. And I was like, hey, what is this? I didn't even recognize the title. I watched it, and I was just mesmerized by this story. Um, and just the grittiness, the realism of it. And it's basically, it's a story about a uh, Indian family that um, are living in the ancestral home of the father, who is one of these guys that you've seen him a million times in American stories where he promises, I'll get, I'll, I'll have a job next week. I'll, we'll have money next week. We'll be fine next week. Exactly. And, and the guy, the actor that plays it is just fantastic. The character he plays is like this priest that goes from village to village. And that's how he kind of makes his money. Well, he he's doesn't a writer. Write. He writes plays. He writes. Right, right. Yeah. He's a dreamer. He's your classic dreamer. The mother holds the whole family together, and it's about the interaction of these two children, the, the daughter, and, and, and so yeah, who, who Ray started filming in 1950. So you yeah. actually see the first actress that played, who's the actual daughter of the woman that plays the mother, um, 
it plays the very young Durga before Apu is born. And I just thought it, you know, one of the things that struck me is how sexist the Indian culture is that they were just living for the boy to be born. You know, they, yeah. they made stop. Oh, now we have a boy. Now we have a boy yeah. and everything stops. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. And so um, I, I and then there's this crazy aunt that moves in and moves out every single week. She gets kicked out and she comes back. You know, the director, the director found her in a brothel. She, she actually was working in a brothel or so-called working in a brothel. Yeah. They kind of kept left her there, just like her character in the movie. And so this 80-year-old, she was an actress when she was a young girl, became a big celebrity in India after this film was released because she is just, I was laughing out loud at a couple of her like comments that she would make. And the mother was constantly on, you're eating our food. We're very poor. You can't eat our food. There was just all of these un unbelievably beautiful vin vignettes. And I just thought the eye, I'll kind of told through the eyes of a Pooh, like every time you would see him on screen. Yeah, yeah. He was like always looking lovingly on his sister, no matter how bad their situation was. There was this level of love within the family. I just thought it was a, I thought it was a great movie. It's it's in my it's in my top it's, fifty films, um, but apparently you did it. So tell well, me what. Well, <laughs> it's more complicated than that. First of all, I I just want to say that somebody put on a pair of shoes, you know, for at some point. <clears throat> the entire movie, everyone is walking around in their bare feet in India. Yeah. It's very poor village. You have to kind it's of a very poor village, and you know, I, I I can't say that I enjoyed this movie entirely. And part of that is because I, I just have a lack of, I don't know, the understanding culturally yeah. of what's happening in India and why people do the things they do or say. So are you voting for Trump, by the way? No, I'm, I'm not just kidding. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not voting for Trump, of course not. <laughs> but, but again, I mean, like someone with this sort of Western mindset, which I, I have to include myself in this, you know, I'm not, I, I don't pretend to understand with any depth the Indian culture. You know, um, things just took forever to sort of unfold and to happen. You know, have these long scenes of people just sort of suffering in silence. You know what I mean? And and, yeah. and, and it's hard. And and it's unclear what the movie is really about. Who is the movie about? Is it about the aunt at first? You're like, is it about her, or is it about the daughter, or is it about the son who comes along? You know, about fifteen or twenty minutes into the movie. You know, it it, it and there are all sorts of odd things that sort of stick with you like Apu when he's born he goes to school but his school is a grocery store right <laughs> so he's in school and the guy who runs the school is also running a grocery store right. and, and yeah, by the way I thought that guy was hilarious yeah he, he was like, talking to the one guy and yelling at the kids yeah, I thought you would appreciate yelling, yeah, he's talking about some music festival and then he's <laughs> Slapping a kid on the hand for playing tic-tac-toe. It yeah. was it was really, really bizarre. But, but amidst it all, okay, there was one thing about the movie that I thought was brilliant. And that was the way the director would construct these camera shots using of water, images of oh, water. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, images of 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 I don't know, lily lily pads in right. water or reeds coming out of water or, or rice, rice pad, rice pads, some of rice patties or 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 flower petals in a pool of water that is disturbed by a stone. Right. And so the flower petals move out and then they kind of, you know, come back together again. And there were these really or or the one, you remember the, the reflection of the characters. Oh yes. Oh, that was a brilliant shot. That was 
Brilliant shot. That was amazing. That, that was that was that was Orson Wellian. That yeah, was like really a well, was. that was like a well shot. You're like, hey, all, how'd they do that? All in black and white. And and you told me how little money these directors had to make this movie. Twenty nine thousand dollars US. If you are a film student and you have a movie that you want to be made, that you want to get made, look at this movie and then go get off your ass and make your movie. So and start waiting around for the big payday to somebody for go out and make your movie. So the first five minutes of the film, the director and the uh, cinematographers were their first five moments filming anything ever. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that's why in, in Indian sim cinema, this is that, you know, Citizen Kane type of movie that they kind of like they do with Kurosawa in Japan. You know, you have to look. And, and again, remember, from a story standpoint, I can see where you might felt it was a slightly disjointed because it's part of a trilogy. There's two right. other films. You know, they follow a poo till he's a 28 year old writer. And okay. so, you know, the, the second film is when they move to this new town. At the end, you see at the first, they're in that wagon. I thought that was a great shot, a black and white shot of that family inside of the wagon. There were some of these really gritty scenes of yep. how bad that life is and how unhealthy their life is um but and yet there are these little moments and they love each other they love each other and they love each other and they're moments of happiness yeah you know uh, but but again i mean there's the one scene where berg is praying for rain yeah she right for rain and then rain comes right, right and then she prays for the rain to leave right. and then she coughs right and well, you knew that when i first saw it i was like uh oh this is bad somebody's yeah. gonna get sick and of course so I don't want to ruin it for happen. a fan that might want to watch this film. I, I, I can't, you know, I, I but, really but the, struggled what, what, to watch this movie this week, Tom. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, the reason why we started a half an hour late this morning is because I was watching the movie. Well, uh, watch that's fine. I, I appreciate the fact that you do watch it because I think we do have to watch about the, the films we talk about. But I just thought when the father realized that his daughter died uh, yeah, was one it. of the most incredible scenes in film that I've ever seen yeah. of, of a father that realized, you know, I fucked, I fucked up. Comes I, back I, after being away for seven months. He's like, look, I brought Berga. Right. I brought her sorry. Right. And the mother sees the sorry and she just breaks down. And that's when he learns. That, You're right. Yeah. Right. And, and so it has all these things. Maybe this is one of those movies that as the days go on, you'll start to think about it more. That's what like Ebert talks about. When a movie lingers with you for a while, yeah. that means it's a great film on some level. And so that was what I was trying to do. So what is our film for next week? Well, next week, we're going to go with a movie that I enjoy, that I will always stop to watch it every time I see it. It's by one of our great American directors, Robert Altman. And that movie is Cookie's Fortune. Okay. So uh, yeah, that's a good good selection. I had I haven't seen that film since I saw it at Brabeck's house, like in when it first came out. So yeah, no, one of my favorite films by by Altman. So until next week, we are two peas in a podcast. Oh, bang the drum slowly and play the five lonely. Play the dead march as they carry me along. Put bunches of roses all over my coffin. Roses to deaden the clouds as they fall. <laughs>